Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Empowered Living, with a message titled, God's Glorious Plan. So turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 14, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. always loved Romans 11:33 it says oh the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways you know the more i study the bible the more i'm overwhelmed by something i struggle to grasp god's ways are surprising to be sure let's say you're picking up a bible for the first time and you're about to read it and before you do you ask someone who knows what's the book all about he looks at you thoughtfully and then he answers well this book is about god It's about how much greater and more magnificent he is than you might have imagined. Yeah, it's a book about God, but it's also an adventure story. It tells us about how God created a world that would showcase just how glorious he is. But I have to warn you before you start reading, this book will be filled with surprising twists in the storyline so that at times you might wonder where it's going. For you're going to learn right at the beginning that God was going to display his magnificence by creating a man and a woman in his image. But they rebel against God's plans and incur death and judgment. And so what happens next? Is God's plan for creating man as male and female made in his image? Is that plan over? Well, no. The plan isn't even slightly off the rails. In the fullness of time, God has predestined that through Jesus, he would create a people for himself who would rule over the works of his hands, a people who would be a showcase for his love and mercy. That's the magnificence of God. But how God does that, well, that's the surprise. You're going to have to read the book. Now, that's my imaginary conversation about someone picking up the Bible for the first time and trying to find out what it's about. But I've been reading this book now for over 40 years, and I'm still overwhelmed and left scratching my head in the way in which God will bring about a new heaven and a new earth under the lordship of Jesus and for his glory. You might wonder what I'm getting at. Well, we started a study on the book of Ephesians, a study which I've said will show us who we are in Christ and the resources that are available to us. And as we embarked on this study, I pointed out that Ephesians 1 verse 3 to verse 14 is all one sentence. Paul, the author of the book, begins with one long sentence designed to be a sentence of praise. It's as if he doesn't take a breath. He just explodes in praise. He's so filled with such exuberant worship. And it's because he wants his readers to understand that God has not withheld a single spiritual blessing from us. He begins by telling his readers what God has done for them before the foundations of the world were laid. And then second, in the fullness of time, he tells them what Christ has done for them on the cross. And then third, he tells them what God will accomplish through Christ in the ages to come. In a sense, that's all straightforward. But now, in verses 11 to 14, this is where we take one of those surprising and unexpected turns. In essence, what he does in these verses is explain the entire nature of God's agenda to redeem his own. So I'll explain that in just a bit, but let's read our passage. Ephesians 1, 11 to 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, if your mind glazed over for just a moment, don't worry. We'll take it one step at a time. You might remember that I said that we need to get a handle on all the pronouns in this paragraph, and our passage today is no exception. So start with verse 11. In him, it says. So who's him? I think him here refers not to God the Father, but to Jesus the Son. And I say that because if you look back to Ephesians 1 verse 9, we read that God the Father made known the mystery of his will, and he did so in Christ. And now since Paul has been talking about how Christ fulfills the purpose of the Father's will, it seems natural now to read the in him as in Christ. Okay, that takes care of the first pronoun, so let's keep reading. In Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. So stop, who is we? That is, who has obtained an inheritance? I know most of us reading that part of the sentence are going to say, well, we must refer to we who have come to believe in Christ. I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. I think we refers to Jewish believers of whom Paul is a part. Now, you might stop and say to me, well, how did you come out with that idea? But if you skip verse 11, you know, which begins, as you'll remember, in him or in Christ, we have obtained, and then it goes on. Then if you go to verse 13, we're going to read, in him, that is, in Christ, you also, it says. I hope you see that. Paul's contrasting the we with the you. This, he says, is what we have, and this, he says, is what you have. Now, also notice that Paul will pick up on that theme later. Go all the way down to chapter 2, verse 11, and notice that sentence begins, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, and on he goes. Indeed, the phrase, you Gentiles, well, that's picked up again in chapter 3, verse 1. I, Paul, on behalf of you Gentiles, Paul writes. Indeed, the contrast between Jew and Gentile, as we're going to see in this study, forms a large part of chapter 2. Paul's going to explain the Jewish-Gentile distinction as well as the great mystery of what Christ has accomplished in that regard. Well, very well. Let's go back to our passage, chapter 1, verse 11. So we read it again. In Christ, we Jews have obtained an inheritance, says Paul. The Greek word is translated inheritance. It's actually an unusual verb. Some translations simply translate the verb chosen. In Christ, we Jews were chosen. Now, if you translate it that way, it makes sense. The Jews are God's chosen people. But another English translation says, we Jews were given our share in the heritage. So I hope you can see simply by comparing English translations, it's a rare word, somewhat difficult to translate. I'm persuaded that the word means that what Paul is saying is that we Jews were assigned our portion by God. God, through his infinite wisdom, decided what role the Jewish people would play. That's why the ESV translates it as, we have obtained our inheritance. God has determined that Israel would play a unique role in the story of bringing salvation to the world. Now, Paul often makes that point. Listen to how he describes the unique role of Israel in Romans 9, 4-5. And there he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That's quite a list. No other nation on earth is God's chosen people in that way. No other nation on earth experienced God speaking to them so that the entire nation heard him at once audibly. 
No other nation on earth was governed by God's divine laws. No other nation on earth had the promise that through them, all the world would be blessed. No other nation on earth was given a king through whom would come the king who would rule the earth, the Messiah. Israel is unlike every other nation on earth. When God chose to redeem a people for himself, he didn't set up a billboard for the world to see or set up a Twitter account or somehow go on to some social media platform. He chose one man, Abraham, and it was through that man and through his descendants, the nation that would come from him, that God would bless the world. And that's the surprise about reading the Bible. The first testament, which sets the stage for God's redemption of the lost sons and daughters of Adam, begins through the long and tortured history of just one nation on earth, Israel. Now, in Ephesians, Paul has started his book by proclaiming that every believer in Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, has been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Every believer, regardless of their race, has redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Every believer, regardless of their race, has a glorious future when all things submit to Christ. But, says Paul, there's an interesting twist in the plot line. In Christ the Messiah, we Jews have been assigned a unique role by God. How so? Well, says Paul, and by the way, look carefully at verse 11, we Jews have been predestined to play a unique role. Just as God predestined all believers that they would be holy and blameless before him, so also God has predestined that Israel would play a unique role, which would be according to the counsel of the Father's will. God the Father had something in mind for Israel. In wisdom, he determined the role that they would play. What does Paul have in mind? Well, look carefully at verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ to stop there, That's one unique role that only Israel played. Read through the Gospels. Where did Jesus spend by far the majority of his ministry? It was all in Israel. Who were his chosen apostles? They were, without exception, all Jews. Who wrote the Bible? The Jews did, with only one exception. Where was the first church formed? In Jerusalem. Who made up the membership of that church? All were Jews. And so Paul can say, we who were the first to hope in Christ. That's how God decided to work. Following Christ involves offering Him everything. Therefore, it naturally follows that following Christ includes our money and our resources. Well, this month, we're excited to offer you Dr. John Newfeld's entire CD series, God and Money as our free Bible teaching resource, and and all you need to do is ask. In this five-message series, Dr. Neufeld describes the advantages of money, its inherent dangers, and how we should manage our money based on an understanding of what the Bible actually teaches. Break down some of the myths and open up your heart and mind as you listen to this important series, God and Money. Ask for your free copy today. All you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. You might have noticed that when Paul, the greatest missionary in history, the first missionary that opened the door to bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, wherever Paul went, he had a unique approach to spreading the gospel. If it were at all possible, he would enter a new city, he would find a local synagogue, and it was there that he would begin to preach. And why? 
Well, listen to what he says in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, to the Jew first. But that's where God began his redemptive program. Now, if you're going to try to digest that and wonder why God, who's obviously interested in making up a chosen people, you know, chosen unto Jesus from every race and tribe and people and tongue, why within God's wise purposes would he choose to make the gospel known first through Israel? Paul says it's in accordance with the counsel of his will. These are God's wise purposes. But what is the purpose? Well, Paul says, so that we, that is, we Jews, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. We're supposed to marvel at God's wise purposes in Israel. See, whenever I teach in Israel, I usually have one session devoted to the way in which Gentile Christians should think about modern-day Jews, especially those who don't accept Jesus as the Messiah. And to that, I usually address the ugly truth. There have been times in a deeply subverted Christian church that anti-Semitism has been allowed to raise its ugly head. I usually remind people with me in Israel that if it were not for the Jewish people, we would have no inheritance in God, for it was the Jews who brought us the gospel. And so our response is twofold. One is to deeply love Israel, recognizing we owe to Israel a debt we can never repay. And the second is to earnestly pray for the day when Israel returns to her Messiah. So let's move on. Let's focus on the last half of this paragraph. Remember, the first is about the wisdom of God in predestining that Israel should play a primary role in bringing the spiritual blessings of the gospel to the world. Now to Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Remember, it's important to get our pronouns right. In him, that is, in Jesus Christ, you, now meaning you Gentiles, when you Gentiles heard the word of truth as we did from our Jewish believing brethren. What did we hear from them? We heard the gospel of our salvation. We heard that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, that he's the long-awaited offspring of David. We also heard that the gospel of Jesus was available to us. We learned that Christ on his cross provided redemption, the forgiveness of sins, not just for Jews, but for anyone, even Gentiles, who believed. When the Gentiles heard and believed. What a marvelous thing to say. We Gentiles believed. And Paul will deal with the miracle of faith in chapter 2, where he's going to speak more about what it means to believe. But nonetheless, here he simply affirms that we Gentiles believed. And then he says, in consequence of believing, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, before we look at what's meant by saying that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit, let's just consider the wonder of the fact that we Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit was first poured out on the day of Pentecost, he was poured out on the first Jewish church. But now we Gentiles have received the same Holy Spirit they received. But not only were we baptized in the Holy Spirit, Paul says we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. A seal is a mark of ownership. In the ancient world, cattle were often branded in order to identify who they belonged to. This practice was also done with slaves. The seal would indicate who their master was. Now, those seals were external, but this seal, the seal of the Holy Spirit, happens internally. And that in itself is a wonder. 
we were sealed by the Holy Spirit and made the property of God. But then, this has happened to Jewish believers when they believed. Paul said, did you Gentile believers notice that you had precisely the same experience as they did? You also were sealed just as they were sealed. And furthermore, not only does that mark us as belonging to the Father and the Son, but the Holy Spirit, he says, is also the guarantee of our inheritance until we take possession of it. You see, the word guarantee is a word that comes from the world of business. It can be translated as a first installment or as a deposit or a down payment, even a pledge. But you don't have to understand the ancient world to know this. It's practiced all the time in our day. See, if you buy a house, and most of us don't have the money to pay it off in cash, do we? We're required to take out a mortgage. And in Canada, there's a law that if your house is less than, I think, $500,000, you're required to put down 5% for the down payment. That would be $25,000. But for every dollar over $500,000, you have to put down 10%. And if it's over a million, 20% is required. And there's a reason for that foreclosures are not in anyone's interest. If you're going to promise to pay off a large mortgage, you have to have an investment in it, which is serving as a guarantee that you're going to pay off the rest. And that's what's being said here. The Holy Spirit is God the Father's down payment. But what is the whole? What's the sum? Well, the answer, it's the inheritance God has promised us in glory. God has promised that you will be raised with Christ in the world to come. You'll never struggle with sin again. Indeed, you'll be holy and blameless. In the world to come, you'll be raised bodily with a new body. In the world to come, you'll rule and reign with Christ, ruling all the creation of God, his vast universe. The promises of the coming age are dizzying. But how can we be assured that the God who made these promises will keep his word? And the answer is he's given us a down payment, a guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit has sealed us so that we now have the first installment of what is to come. You know, in that sense, the Holy Spirit is a foretaste of the world to come. See, I remember, and it's years ago now, that a certain food company came up with a spray can that you could spray a taste of a certain food on your tongue. So were you craving cake? Well, just spray a cake taste on your tongue. You fancy a fattening hamburger. You can just spray some burger taste on your tongue. You see, the idea behind the product is that you can satisfy your taste without having to actually eat it. It's supposed to work for dieters. Of course, the product failed, and it failed because a foretaste doesn't put your craving to bed. It wakes it up. Give me that foretaste of a good hamburger, and I think I'm going to go way down to the burger place and load up. You know, it's kind of funny that. But in the spiritual realm, this is a wonderful truth. See, one of the things the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer is that he awakens in the redeemed heart a holy, passionate longing for the kingdom to come when Christ will be all in all. Paul says that the same Holy Spirit, when he first fell on the Jewish church, has also now fallen on the Gentile church so that not only do we have a guarantee of God's promises, but now we have an awakened appetite that can't be satisfied until all that we have in Christ is received in our inheritance. That's the unifying experience between all Jews and Gentiles. Now then, if that's true, it must also be true of every single believer in the world in Christ. 
regardless of race and nationality and cultural experiences, language grouping. Every believer in the world, no matter where you live or no matter at what time period you have lived in the past, have tasted the same Holy Spirit. There's no room for racism, but there's a great deal of room for reveling in the glorious truth that we all have the same passion and we all have the mark of ownership of God on our lives. That, says Paul, is to the praise of his glory. Indeed, God is glorified in this expression of Christian unity. Now, when I began, I spoke of the depths of the riches and wisdom of God. I said the longer we read our Bible and the longer we familiarize ourselves in how God's plan to glorify himself in the salvation of a great company of people, that plan overwhelms us with a sense of wonder. It's a mystery. Who but God could have come up with such a great salvation? Let's remind ourselves then of the beginning of Ephesians. Verse 3 to verse 14 is one long sentence. It's explosive praise for every spiritual blessing that we have received, chosen before the foundation of the world, redeemed by the blood of Christ, promised an eternal inheritance, and then Jews and Gentiles, so disparate, made into one family with the same longing experience. You know, some years ago, I prayed with a new convert, an Iraqi man. I prayed, Lord, thank you that you planned his redemption before time began, and thank you for sending Jesus to save him from his sin. And thank you for sealing with the Holy Spirit. And then suddenly the man grabbed my arm and he said, you have to stop praying for a while. I can hardly take it in. Indeed, you and I should feel just like him. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you this. You know, our, our culture spends so much time and energy on, on everything that divides us. But the Bible teaches that all people can be one in Christ. Yeah, I'm Christ is the unifier of humanity. Now, it needs to be said that Christ is also the divider of humanity. I mean, you'll remember that Jesus did say that he had come to bring uh, a sword, that he would divide a, you know, a mother against her daughter and so forth. Um, but in the end of the day, Christ will unify all. And he is the only hope for a divided world. Uh, without Christ, we are continually going to be fighting with one another. But the wonderful thing is that he has, you know, as the passage we've read, he's predestined everything according to the purpose of his will, counsel of his will, God's purposes will prevail. So uh, there's some good news. And uh, yes, Christ alone will bring unity. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Empowered Living, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Today, there are 1.6 billion websites on how to get rich quick. I'm, I'm only joking. You know, but our TVs promise that a newer car, a colder drink, or a bigger house will be just the ticket to bring joy. But if money were the key to happiness, we'd be the happiest culture in history. Instead, we access more psychologists, lawyers, and antidepressants than any previous generation. So what makes life rich? Well, this month, Phil Calloway uncovers some answers in the new Laugh Again booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich. Money is a blessing when held in our hands, but never in our hearts. 
to request your copy of the booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich, as our free gift during the month of May, visit us online at backtothebible.ca or simply give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.